This week's episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible is the internet's leading provider of audiobooks with over 150,000 titles to choose from. When you're done with this podcast, please visit audibletrial.com forward slash the renaissance for a free audiobook with your free 30-day trial subscription. Today's recommendation is A Room with a View by Ian Forrester. While not a work of art history, it is a classic novel set in 19th century Florence and mentions many of the sites we will be discussing throughout this podcast. You may choose this or another one of their many titles when you visit audibletrial.com forward slash the renaissance for your free download. Hello, and welcome to the Renaissance, Episode 1, The Rise of the Medici. It would be impossible to discuss the Renaissance without discussing first Florence and its ruling family, the Medici. Florence is the birthplace of the Renaissance and remained an important center of art even near the end of the High Renaissance as its ideas spread beyond its city walls. Both Leonardo and Michelangelo were born in Florence and Raphael studied there. Florence was founded by the Roman general Sulla as Fluentia around 80 BC as a settlement for retired soldiers. As payment for their service, soldiers were given land grants and dispersed throughout the Italian countryside. Named Fluentia because it lies along the banks of the Arno River, the name was eventually corrupted to Florentia. Throughout the Middle Ages, Florence grew as an important center of trade, specifically the cloth trade. The city was also home to one of the largest banking houses in Europe, though usury was still condemned by the church. Therefore, the Florentines devised clever names for their banking guild to avoid entanglements with the church over money lending. We will discuss the guilds in more depth in a little bit. For now, just know that Florence was home to a large textile trade and banking empire. Like most growing cities of the Middle Ages, Florence's industries were controlled by trade guilds, or arti. There existed 21 guilds by the 14th century, 7 major guilds, and 14 minor ones. The most prestigious guild was that of the lawyers, followed by that of the wool, silk, and cloth merchants, the Arta della Lana, the Arta di Por Santa Maria, and the Arta di Calimala. Each of these guilds are named after the streets where their respective warehouses were located. One of the newer but growing guilds was that of the bankers, or the Arta del Cambio. Members of this guild were forced to adopt customs to disguise the true nature of their business, since money lending was still outlawed by the church. Following the bankers in importance was the guild of the doctors, the apothecaries, and the shopkeepers. This is the guild where you will find the artists and painters, since their supplies, pigment, were purchased from the local apothecary. Many of the same minerals used for medicines could also be ground into pigments for paint. 
They were therefore admitted into the same guild. The final guild of the major seven dealt with the fur trade. Everyone else who worked in an industry was placed in one of the 14 minor guilds. Those without a formal workshop or recognized trade were without a guild, and therefore they were excluded from the political process in Florence. This included three-quarters of the population of Florence. Theoretically, Florence was a republic and established as such by the Ordinance of Justice in 1293. This gave control of the city's affairs to the 21 established guilds, and all members of a guild had a voice in Florentine politics. Male citizens, 30 years old and older from these guilds, were selected every two months to serve in the governmental body of Florence, known as the Senoria. The names were essentially drawn from a hat, or in this case, a bag, and were known as the Priori. Once selected, the Priori were forced to leave their homes and move into the Palazzo Senoria for their two-month term. While this gives the semblance of democracy, the Senoria was in fact controlled by the wealthiest men of the city, through various councils and rigging of the selection process. It would be impossible to rise to power through virtue alone. In Florence, as Christopher Hibbert points out in The House of Medici, its rise and fall, which I use extensively for this episode, it was honorable to be a wealthy man and dishonorable to be a poor one. Therefore, your status was determined by your wealth. As I stated earlier, one of the rising guilds was that of the bankers, Though not of the same prestige as the lawyers and the cloth merchants, banking would soon rise to prominence. The lending of money, with interest of course, would help to fund all of the other trades and various enterprises that brought wealth to Florence. Who controlled this vast banking empire? Why, the Medici family. You're going to need to know that name for the test. Oh, I forgot to tell you, there's a test at the end of the podcast. Just kidding, no test but you really do need to know the Medici name. We will continually run into members of the family throughout the Renaissance. The Medicis played an important role in Florentine and later church and European politics. We will eventually see Medici popes and a Medici as the Queen of France. But they are also central to the story of the Renaissance. Though not artists themselves, they made possible through their patronage many of the great Renaissance works we know and love today. They pretty much bankrolled the entire operation. So, while the Renaissance may have happened without the Medicis, they definitely helped move things along. In fact, almost every artist in Renaissance Italy had some connection to the Medici family. It's almost like Seven Degrees of Kevin Bacon. We could easily play Seven Degrees of the Medici family, link every artist within the Renaissance to the Medici family within Seven Degrees of Separation. According to legend, the Medicis traced their ancestor to a mythical knight of Charlemagne's, who slayed a giant terrorizing the Tuscan countryside around Florence. As a reward, he was allowed to display the dents in his shield as three red balls on a field of gold for his coat of arms. Some assert that the three balls represent pills or cupping glasses, as the Medici ancestors likely were doctors or apothecaries, as their names suggest. Others suggest the three red balls were coins, a symbol of their trade as moneylenders. But why highlight that in light of the church's prohibition against moneylending? Besides, who doesn't like a great story of a knight slaying a mythical beast? While the Medici were certainly not considered new money, they weren't quite old money either. The family sat somewhere in the middle, holding a place of quiet respectability through the late Middle Ages. The first Medici known to hold public office 
was Nardingo de' Medici, who became Gonfalonieri, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, Gonfalonieri of Justice in 1296. A Gonfalonieri was officially the keeper of Florence's standards or banners. He was in charge of internal security of the city and maintaining public order. Essentially, the Gonfalonieri acted as a chief of police in medieval and Renaissance Florence. The fortunes of the Medicis waxed and waned, and waned some more, throughout the end of the Middle Ages. The family had become too closely associated with the popular uprisings of the lower classes in the 14th century. And when the wealthy elite reasserted control over the city, there was a general distrust of the Medici family. Such was the state of the Medici family until we come to Giovanni de' Medici, the father of Cosimo. We will discuss Cosimo a little bit more in a minute. Giovanni was less wealthy than his peers, and this only added to the suspicions of the elites. The Medicis were still distrusted, even generations after the popular uprisings. While Giovanni maintained the support of the common people, he was careful not to alienate his wealthy peers. Keeping a low profile, Giovanni quietly built his fortune in the counting house and rebuilt his family's reputation. Giovanni's success as a banker can be attributed to his friendship with the Pope and being the Pope's banker. It was this newfound wealth and respectability that Cosimo would inherit in 1429 when Giovanni died. Cosimo was born in 1389 on the feast day of Saints Cosmas and Damian, the patron saint of physicians, and was therefore named after Cosmas. Cosimo received his education at the monastery of Santa Maria degli Angeli, hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, where he learned French, German, Latin, and Greek. Developing a love for classical learning, Cosimo became what we would call a humanist. Now, a humanist during the Renaissance means someone who has an interest in classical studies, as in the humanities, who still take those in college. Early in his life, he surrounded himself with humanist thinkers and began collecting manuscripts of classical works. He also began collecting and commissioning art. Not only did he purchase works of classical origin, he commissioned numerous public works of art throughout the city. He was a patron of Fra Angelico, Donatello, Brunelleschi, all of whom we'll cover in later episodes, and we will touch on Cosimo's involvement during these episodes. Just like his father, Cosimo shunned the spotlight of public office, but he still had ambitions and a desire for power. Using his growing fortune, he wielded power behind the scenes. When an anti-Demedici faction, led by members of the Albizi family, began to fear Cosimo's influence, they made plans to take over the city in the summer of 1433. The Albizis were longtime rivals of the Medicis, and while Cosimo was away from Florence, Rinaldo Albizi began manipulating the elections of the Sonoria, placing Albizi supporters in several key positions, including Gonfalonieri. Sensing the impending danger, Cosimo began quietly transferring his wealth to Venice, Rome, and other key sites in his banking network to protect his assets should Ronaldo and his henchmen try to seize them. Summoned to the Sonoria in September 1433, Cosimo was arrested under trumped-up charges of crimes against the state and placed in a cell in the Palazzo Sonoria. The Medici supporters were locked out of the Sonoria, and Ronaldo had full control of the government. Ronaldo pushed for the execution of Cosimo, but it seems the special committee formed of 200 citizens, known as the Balia, had trouble sentencing him to death. 
Despite being supporters of the Albizi family, they could not convince themselves that Cosmo deserved death for the crimes he was accused of. Cosimo was to be banished, along with his brother and cousin. Cosimo was escorted, under the cover of darkness, to Padua. Despite his exile, support for Cosimo ran higher than ever. As Rinaldo's tactics against his rivals became more and more brutal, his troops were defeated by Milanese mercenaries. All confidence was lost in his administration, and agitation grew in support for the return of Cosimo. Eventually, the makeup of the Sonoria began to change as Medici supporters gained control. When Ronaldo was called to meet with the Sonoria, he suspected it was their intention to have him arrested. Rather than meeting with them, he gathered his troops and prepared to assault the Sonoria. On September 25, 1434, Ronaldo's forces began their assault. Expecting this confrontation, the members of the Sonoria were well provisioned and barricaded themselves inside after sending calls for reinforcements throughout the countryside. The situation for Ronaldo worsened, and despite holding the Bargello, a military barracks, and burning all the homes of the Medici, as well as maintaining control of the neighborhood around the Palazzo Sonoria, he continued to have problems. His troops deserted in high numbers, and those who stayed were more intent on looting than maintaining the siege of the Sonoria. Summoned by the Pope, who was staying at Santa Maria Novella, Ronaldo left the Sonoria to meet with him. By morning, the pontiff had convinced Ronaldo of the futility of his cause and that he should abide by the decisions of the Sonoria. Ronaldo, seeing the writing on the wall, left for his palace and hastily split. The next day, the Sonoria reformed under the watchful eye of the Pope's representatives and made a vow to reform the government for the good of the people. Promptly, they lifted the ban on the Medicis, and within a few days, Cosimo returned to Florence and was hailed a hero. The Albizi family and all of their supporters were banished from the city. In fact, so many well-known names were on the list that some complained Florence had been emptied of its most leading citizens. Upon his return to the city, Cosimo was the architect of constitutional changes that allowed him to maintain sole control of the city, behind the scenes, of course. Despite the outward appearances of democracy, Cosimo would hold complete sovereignty over Florence, ruling as a de facto monarch. This might be seen as a negative, but by all accounts, Cosimo was a just and capable administrator who helped bring Florence into the full flowering of the Renaissance, sort of the embodiment of Plato's enlightened despot in the Republic. We are not quite finished with Cosimo just yet. He will turn up as a major patron for the arts throughout the early Renaissance. We will also see the influence of his children and grandchildren throughout the Renaissance, specifically his grandson Lorenzo, who may get his own podcast a little ways down the road. Next time, we will discuss the seeds of the Renaissance with Giotto. I hate to do this because we just got started, but next week is the 4th of July in the States, and the missus and I will be celebrating the holiday, and I will not have time to write the next podcast. However, I will return the following week, Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast so that you may receive the latest episodes as they are published. You may do this through your iTunes account, just look up The Renaissance, or through therenaissancepodcast.com. 